This morning we are finishing up, as I've been likening Romans chapter 8 to kind of the Mount Everest climbing, uh, the, the peak, the pinnacle, the crescendo, if you would, is what we're looking at this morning, Romans 8, 31 to 39. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at the text of Scripture. God, thank you that you have revealed your very self to us in your word. You've given us your heart. You share your love, your purpose, your will, your agenda. And so now may we submit to the Spirit's teaching in our lives, individually and corporately, and have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I will ask you one more time if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that, my friends, is not good news, I don't know what is. And that is the very word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's remember a little bit of context as we close out Romans 1 through 8. Why did Paul write Romans? We like to think of Paul primarily as a theologian or as a scholar or maybe a pastor. At heart, do you want to know what Paul was? And he was all of those things, but they served his primary purpose that he was a missionary. What was he called to do? He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles to take this glorious news that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about it in that context. Not the Roman emperor, not Nero, not anything else, but the world's true Lord is Jesus Christ. And Paul's heart was to take that message, that glorious news, that hope to the ends of the earth. Now the ends of the earth that they knew of it back then, that they were aware of, was places like Spain. So what did Paul want to do? He wanted to go to the seat of the Roman Empire, which was Rome, the capital of it. And in a sense, what he did, he was going, so think of this like support raising. He's going to raise support. He's going to get their prayer support. He's going to get their backing. And so what does he do? He sends ahead this letter that is, in one sense, his spiritual resume. In one sense, it's a statement of belief. It's Paul's confession of faith, saying, here's what I'm all about, Rome. This is what it is and what I'm all about, so that he can enlist their support as he takes this message to the ends of the earth. And we saw how he structured this message. 
So after saying, chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the very power of God for salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew, first then to the Gentile, he talks about our need for the gospel. And then he introduces the glorious doctrine of justification by faith, that we are justified, this legal act of God based on the work of Jesus Christ, that we're forgiven and declared righteous. Which brings us to the end of chapter 4 in the next major section of Romans, which is Romans 5 through 8, which basically is saying, okay, if we're justified, we still live in this world. We still live in a dangerous world. It's still very insecure. There's still a lot of enemies. There's enemies within, my own sinful flesh. There's enemies without the world. There's Satan. There's death. There's hell. All of these enemies. How will I know I will make it to the end? How will I know, yes, Jesus justified me, how will I know that will lead to final, ultimate salvation? And Romans 5 through 8, Paul is basically answering that question, how can we be guaranteed of our final salvation? And the way he goes about his argument is alluding to something they would be very familiar with from the Old Testament scriptures, kind of their paradigm for salvation, which would be the exodus. And he walks them through the gospel as a new exodus. So in Romans chapter 6, he talks about their liberation, just like the first piece of the exodus was you're liberated, you're delivered from the house of bondage, the house of slavery, Egypt. Romans chapter 6, through our union with Christ, you're liberated, you're delivered from the dominion of sin, the domain of sin, and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's the first step of your exodus. Now what happened in the original exodus? That brought them, they came through the Red Sea, and where did they go? They went to Mount Sinai, where they did what? They received the law, the Ten Commandments. So in Romans chapter 7, what does Paul do? He brings them, but he does so through a kind of surprising twist to the new place of the law in their lives. And he says to them, because of the work of Jesus Christ, you've died to the law, and the law is now fulfilled in you, and your life is now kind of an inside-out living. Now, after Mount Sinai, what happened to the Israelites? Did they go from Mount Sinai? See, you have to know your Old Testament history here a little bit. Did they go from Mount Sinai to the promised land? See, maybe they missed the praise song that our friends were singing. Instead of, I'm bound for the promised land, they said, I've arrived in the promised land, right? No, that's not how it works. Because you go from Mount Sinai to the wilderness, now, what is the wilderness like? I know what we'd like it to be like. We would love for the wilderness to be a walk in the park. You know, for me, my golf clubs, my gap wedge. Oh, beautiful shot. Oh, there's Bambi over there. I'm going to get a drink in the brook. You know, that's what we think of the wilderness, right? Bring our little picnic. You know, maybe we have our picnic basket. You know, we do the whole thing. Friends, that is not the wilderness in a biblical picture. The wilderness in a biblical picture is a barren, lifeless, dry, arid, dangerous place where we are, the people of God, are foreigners and exiles. And that is our Christian context where we are walking on the road, in the wilderness, on pilgrimage, bound for the promised land. Have you figured out why I asked the guys to do that song this morning, by the way? Just making sure you're all with me. Because that's what Romans 8 is. 
Romans 8 is we are bound, we are in the wilderness, we are bound for the promised land, led by the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like in the original Exodus, they had the glory cloud, cloud by day, fire by night, overshadowing them, leading them on their way, a foreshadowing and an anticipation of the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us through the wilderness to the promised land. So in this passage, the passage we're looking at, how can we know that we will be secure and led to final salvation? Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit showing us that if we are in Christ, the Spirit is leading us, that we can't lose him and he can't lose us. What we have here in verses 31 to 39 is kind of the Mount Everest, the climax, the crescendo, the apex of the picture of Paul's teaching on how we can be secure in an insecure and dangerous world. I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that every day. And the text teaches us three things about this security. It teaches us why we need security, what security is, and how and where we can find it. Okay? Why we need it, what it is, how we can get it. Okay? First of all, why we need it. I want to take you back. Have you ever noticed in history the fascination we have with the future? How many of you remember all the hoopla 19 years ago regarding Y2K? Remember Y2K? Evie and I and Joel were living in Oklahoma at the time. And Y2K, you know, in Oklahoma, you've got your, your safe, your storm closet for tornadoes. I mean, storm houses were being built for Y2K. I mean, because who knew what was going to happen the moment it struck 12.00 on January 1st? Computers were going to shut down. I know that the TV show Lost wasn't around yet, but I think we were expecting planes to fall out of the sky. Everything was going to come crashing down. It was, again, it was before Walking Dead. There were going to be zombies all over. I mean, the world was going to come to an end. That New Year's Eve, and I fall asleep at New Year's Eve, usually around 9.30. So I'm, not, I'm really not a good party type person. But that particular night, I was up. And not just because it was 19 years ago and I was 19 years younger, but I was up. I was like, what's going to happen at 12 o'clock on Y2K? And of course, what happened at 12 o'clock? Absolutely nothing. 12.01 happened, 12.02. I said, I could have been asleep three hours ago. <laughs> but have you ever thought why we have this fascination with the future? It has to do with who we are that were made in the image of God, and as such, being made in the image of God, having the ability to be rational, to think, to be logical, we have the unique ability to look in the future, not to know what is going to happen as much as we try, but to think about it, to plan for it, to prepare for it. We also can hopefully look into the past and learn from our past, not that we always do that. But we need to dig a little deeper. The real reason we are so concerned with the future is we do want to know what's going to happen to us. We want to be in control of our lives. We don't want to just understand or know the facts. And that is because intuitively we are insecure people. There, I told you. You're insecure. I am too. Living in an insecure world. We don't want to simply know the objective facts. We are interested in knowing, will we be okay? Will we be safe? And see, and there's a reason 
for this. There's a reason for this. It's built into us. We were created, think about our original creation, we were created for the Garden of Eden. We were designed to be in a safe place where both physically and spiritually we were in a safe environment where we worship God and love one another. And if we look at this passage, Paul is telling us how we can be secure, but he's starting why we need secure. As I've said from the beginning, Paul never sugarcoats reality. And if you look with me down at verse 35, look at what he says. Talk about why we need security. He starts, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now look at what he lists. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, guess what you can expect in life? You can expect tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I know you're sitting there and going, wow, yippee, this is good news. I'm excited for Monday morning. Which one is coming? Little heap of distress followed by famine. This is exciting. But what Paul is saying is you're on the road bound for the promised land, not yet in the promised land. And what we continually try to do is to make our permanent home here. Rather than having the mindset that we're foreigners, that we're exiles, that we're missionaries, that we're on pilgrimage, we want to make our home here in finite created things. So we invest everything in our families and our relationships and our friendships and our portfolios and our financial security and our careers. We make, and these are good gifts. I'm not telling you not to enjoy your family. I'm saying it's a created, finite thing. Don't make it an infinite, ultimate thing. That's where Jamie Smith was right. God wants us coming to worship to retrain and recalibrate our hearts because the problem with our hearts is we're taking gifts and we're making them ultimate. Where God wants only himself to be ultimate. None of those gifts will satisfy your heart. None of those gifts will ultimately satisfy you. Only Christ. So we need to acknowledge we need security. We live in a world that's dangerous. We live in an insecure environment. And we have to quit denying and suppressing our need and acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge our need that we face distress and danger and nakedness and sword and famine and persecution. We're foreigners and exiles in a world. Secondly, we need to recognize what security is. And it's very important for us to realize that security is two-dimensional. We need to recognize as human beings, we have been created by God, both physical and non-physical, material and immaterial, body and soul. Not simply one or the other, but both. God created us both. He's redeemed us both. He's restoring both body and soul. Most of the errors in the world, and oftentimes in religion, go on one side or the other. Take science, for instance. Science is always trying to solve our physical problems, but oftentimes ignoring or at the expense of spiritual or moral issues. 
Take, on the other hand, Eastern religions. They're focused on the spiritual, but they ignore the health of the physical. But see, we have to recognize that we are more than physical beings. We are physical and spiritual beings, and God is interested in all of us holistically as human beings. Look again with me at verse 37. See, how are we, think about this, how are we more than conquerors? It says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You want to know what I think is the most difficult thing to do in the Christian life? It's not your spiritual disciplines. It's not your duties. It's actually resting and being secure in the love of Jesus Christ. I actually think that's the most challenging thing to do in the Christian life is to rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened. And first of all, here's what I don't think he meant. He didn't say that you're weary and heavy burdened largely because you're working a nine-to-five job. and stuff. We all have to do that. I think the chief thing that makes us weary and heavy laden is the burden of being like that hamster in the wheel, constantly going, constantly going, trying to prove ourselves, vindicate ourselves, justify ourselves, make sure we're safe and secure and okay. And we have to admit that's our tendency. We're insecure people whose tendency is always to justify ourselves. And we need to recognize that it is only through Jesus' love that we're more than conquerors. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, John chapter 15, he said, abide in my love. He says, as the Father loved me. I just pause there. See, we have to slow down when we read the scripture. Think about that for a second. As the Father loved me, how much do you think the Father loved Jesus? A little bit? Only when he was a good boy somehow? As the Father loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Jesus loves us with the same love that the Father loves him. And then he tells us, abide, meaning stay put, remain, rest in that love. See, think about it. That to me is the hardest thing to do. And Jesus says that we are more than conquerors. And the word there really means super conquerors. Only through him who loved us. If you think you're going to be more than a conqueror because you're going to somehow buck up and try harder. Or pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Or be able to do better. Or get your act together. Or be tougher. That is not what the word of God teaches You have to admit, you can't make yourself secure on your own. You can only be more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Now lastly, so where do we find this love? Where do we find this security? How can we be secure? Where do we find the security we need? Go back to the beginning of the text, verse 31. In verses 31 to 35, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Take a look at this. What is Paul doing as he brings us to the apex, the height of Mount Everest? He is basically teaching on how we can be secure. He's doing it as this tremendous logical argument built on five tightly knit questions. Basically, what is he doing is he's throwing these questions into the air, daring anyone to be able to answer them. Basically saying, I'm going to throw these questions out there, and I dare you to be able to answer what are these unanswerable questions. And he begins in verse 31 by saying, here's the first question, what then? In other words, what shall we say in response to this? In response to what? What he just said in verses 28 to 30 where he looked at the sovereign plan of God, that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God is conforming to the image of Christ and working everything in your life for the good of making you like Jesus Christ. And now Paul says, what shall we say in response to that? If God is doing that, everything in your life is working towards that. If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, Paul is speaking in ultimate cosmic terms, saying rest, be secure in God's sovereign plan. Take a deep breath and say, God has this. Because you want to know what? He does. And he can't lose you. You are kept. What did Peter write in 1 Peter 1? You are being guarded by the very power of God. Your inheritance is being kept, not by the strength of your faith, but by the very power of God. You are secure in the sovereign plan of God. See, it's so easy to look at, if God is for us, who can be against us? I can think of all sorts of things that can be against us, and they can. Your health can be against you. Other people can be against you. I've experienced that. Other people can really be against you. Circumstances. Life can be against you. You know who can't? If you're in Christ, glued, united to Jesus Christ, the glory cloud of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, do you want to know who can't be against you? God. If God is for you. Wow. That's amazing. Jack Miller always used to say, he says, you know how I define the church? He says, the church are the called out people who are under the smile and favor of God. Friends, do you believe that? Do you really believe you're under the favor of God? Or do you sit here on Sunday morning and say, well, yeah, I believe it now. And then as you drive off, have whatever conversation you're having, face whatever it is you're facing on Monday morning, you're still the church. You're still the people of God that are under the irrevocable smile and favor of God. Be secure in God's plan. But look at this, more than that. Look at the second, Paul hurls out these five questions. Look at the second question. And each one builds on the last. How can we know we're secure in God's plan? Well, because we can be secure 
in somebody's death. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, if we found in the first question our security in somebody else's plan, here we find our security in someone else's death. The Greek word for the word spare is a very interesting one. It's a legal term. What it's recounting is a courtroom scene, and it's a recounting the exodus again, that the reason God will spare you will think pass over you, The reason why he can refrain from judging you with the angel of death is that he did not pass over his own son. He did not spare his own son. He did not refrain from doing something to Jesus. That is, God did not refrain from punishing, from judging, from executing justice, ultimate justice on Jesus for your sins and for my sins. And so the logic of this passage, of this question is, how will he who for you was not willing to spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give you everything you need? And that gives you ultimate security. Next, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Now he's saying... Okay, if you're secure in someone else's plan, you're secure in someone else's death, be secure in someone else's record. Again, look at the legal judicial language. Who's going to bring a charge against someone God has justified? Remember what justification is? It is God's legal declaration that you are both forgiven and righteous. That is that the most fundamental reality of your life is that you're justified by God. That Christ's record, think about this. I remember in school being so scared all the time. Remember in elementary school? You'd be sent to the office and said, it's going to change your permanent record. (laughs) You know, I want to have a talk with my mom at some point because I've never seen my permanent record. I just know from first to sixth grade, I was told that all the time. (laughs) If you get called to the principal's office, it's going to impact your permanent record. (laughs) I didn't know the gospel then. And I wonder so, so often if I really understand the gospel now, because here's the truth of justification. Christ's record is stamped across the sheet of your life. You do have a permanent record. It's called Christ's righteousness. And yet we're still insecure people. Verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Here we're secure in someone else's advocacy. How do you picture Christ's praying for you, by the way? I mean, the text is pretty clear. Christ's interceding. What do you think is the content of his prayers for you? Too often, I'm afraid, mine kind of go like this. Jesus is up there and say, Father, have you seen that nincompoop down there, Jeff? (laughs) Have some pity on him. He's really trying his best. Kind of hard on himself. Performance addict, performance junkie, kind of a recovering Pharisee. Just feel sorry for him. Huh? little pity? What do you say, Dad? Huh? Oh, friends, Jesus' advocacy 
his championing us, his fighting for us is so much deeper and better and more. You know what Jesus is actually interceding for us? He's saying, Father, I want you to be just towards your people. And here's why. Be just. Give them justice. Because I am advocating and saying, here are my merits. Now give them justice. Because who can bring a charge against God's elect? Think about it. And, you know, one of the things I think we want more than anything else in life is to know someone fights for us, someone advocates us, someone champions us. Some of my greatest memories with my earthly father were when I was playing sports. I used to love, I was never six foot two, by the way. So I was always, when I played basketball, just like now I'd be the shortest guy on the court, back then I was the shortest guy on the court. Something I've had to live with. Would it be fair if I said it's my cross to bear? Probably not. But I never forget being able to play basketball and my dad, and yes, he embarrassed me a little bit, but absolutely standing up in the stands and going, go get him, Jeff, reckless abandon. And I'd be like, what does that mean? But at the same point in time, I knew I never felt him fighting for me, championing me, advocating for me more than at that moment. Friends, who is it that fights for you? Who is it who fights your battles and who has fought your ultimate battle? Who took on sin? Who took on Satan? Who took on death? Who took on hell? For you. Jesus Christ intercedes and says, Father, here are my merits. Treat them according to my merits. And the final question. Based on it, think Think how all these, do you feel like we're climbing Mount Everest? If we're secure in someone's plan, secure in someone's death, secure in someone's record, secure in someone's advocacy, how can we not be secure in someone's love? He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are more than conquerors. And so based on all this, he makes the conclusion, he draws the conclusion. Verse 38, for I am sure, I think it out. I have logicked this out, and I am convinced, even though I am being led as a sheep to the slaughter, I'm a foreigner in exile, I face danger and distress and famine and nakedness and persecution and sword, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how will that make us different if we begin to say, if we begin our morning prayers, Lord, I'm insecure. My heart is cold. I don't just need doctrinal nuggets. I need truth, capital T, who is Jesus, because he is the truth. I need gospel truth. I need his plan, his death, his record, his advocacy, his love. Imagine if we could be secure in his love, the difference it would make as we related to God and others. We wouldn't have to relate to others needing their affirmation, needing their approval, needing their validation. 
We wouldn't have to relate to others needing them to come through for us. And can you imagine what kind of church we could be if we related to, imagine having a competition and fighting, going, I'm secure in Jesus' love, you're secure in Jesus' love. We're basically going at it seeing who can do what's best for the other person. And then imagine if the world begins to see that. That if the world begins to witness what Jesus says, all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Notice what it doesn't say. All men will know you're my disciples by how smart you are. All men will know you're my disciples by the quality of your argumentation. All men will know you're my disciples because you have the most polished programs in the world. All men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And love will be the fruit as we're secure in Jesus' love. Oh, that we would make it our vision and our prayer to rest in his love. Father, I pray, I praise you that we are safe. In this insecure, dangerous world, our safety is in Jesus. Teach us to examine our style of relating. Teach us to examine how we come across. Teach us to examine, and to not be afraid to examine that, that we would recognize our insecurities, and that we would turn to you, Jesus, where our true security and our true safety lies. And we'd learn to be secure in your love, so that instead of needing others to validate or vindicate us or affirm us, we can be filled with your love, and then really truly liberated and free to love others, to listen, to understand. We don't need to be heard as much as we can hear other people. We can enter into their stories and love them. What a picture that that would be. Jesus, thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.